This morning special for us, uh, obviously Dana and Stu are here. Okay, so here's the thing. Stu was going to lead worship for us this morning, but was like a week ago? His appendix burst. Okay, he's still alive, so that's praise the Lord. No, but so he, yeah, you could clap. You could clap for the life of Stu, yes. Uh, so the reason I share that is uh, he's still got like bandages and stuff, and he's here with us anyway, like he wanted to be with us. So cool, right? So Stu, we love you. So glad you're here, dude. Uh, I'm going to introduce Dana to you right now. I'll be quick, okay, because I want her to have a lot of time. Uh, Dana's a gift. Dana and Stu both, they're gift. Uh, I'll, I'll, spore, I'll, I'll spare you the, like, the impressive resume. Um, I think oftentimes our culture defines people by what they do and by what they've accomplished in the eyes of others. So I'm just going to set that aside. Like, Dana's very gifted in many ways, especially with music. Um, but the, the thing that I love about her and her husband the most is that they, their deep love for Jesus and his church. Um, our church is, like with kids, like 140, 150 people. Okay, we're a church plant. Um, they could be plenty of other places, frankly speaking, to much larger crowds of people. And they choose to invest in infant church plants like us because they understand um, that God's heart is to multiply households of faith, to plant churches to see disciples of Jesus made, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Okay, so I asked Dana to come preach uh, a, version of the, a version of the message that she's going to preach this morning that had a massive impact on me. Um, there are few couples I trust more when it comes to this idea of praising, worshiping Jesus from a place of authenticity and, frankly, from a place of need and dependence and a place of, of confidence in who they are and who Jesus has made them to be. So I am thoroughly confident that God's going to encourage you, challenge you, bless you, um, through, through Dana's words this morning. So we want to create a culture of honor here. Honor is really important. So what I'm going to ask you to do is um, before Dana says a word, give her the loudest, most rambunctious welcome you ever have, okay? Ladies and gentlemen, Dana Dooley. Wow, okay. And that's the end of my message. Thank you. It feels so good to be here. I feel like I don't really have to do anything now that that's over with. Um, No, seriously, it is such a privilege to be here. Um, We... Stu and I are very fond of Tom and Ebony, as I'm sure you are. They're one of those couples, and individually and as a pair, who when you are standing in front of them, um, it sounds cheesy, but you feel like you're one of the only people in the world. They have that intentionality about them, that care, that love that is just so... um, Oh, it's just so impactful. And so the way that they speak about this community and this church um, made, honestly, both of us really excited to be here and to be with you, especially getting to talk about worship, which I absolutely love. Um, it is not something that has always been easy, I will say. Nothing... Uh, causes you to question and wrestle with worship, like being in a church plant and having to get up every week and lead, which I did for years. And you're like, is this really worth it? Do I really believe in this? Um, And time and time again, I'm going to take a sip of this. Sorry. 
time and time again, I find myself so acutely aware of why it is so beautiful, why it is so necessary, and why we need to spend time investing in it. This week, I listened to Tom's message from last week, and man, I just was so stirred. I was out in kind of a prayer walk, just praying for you as a community, and I felt this stirring inside of me, how epic, how beautiful, how glorious worship is. And so I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to talk about it. I will say I think worship is, is, it's always necessary, but particularly in our day and age, I think it is challenging for many of us to engage with. Um, And we'll get a little bit more into that in just a bit. But for now, um, and this is kind of a silly analogy. If you really hate it, it was my husband's, but I think it's helpful. Um, (laughs) He's definitely the brains of the operation. So, um, but we were talking about worship and he kind of akined it to learning to drive. So for many of us in this room, if we grew up in the U.S., Um, We learned to drive at 16. I'm in my 30s now, and I look at 16-year-olds, and I think, who gives them car keys? Um, But someone gave me some. And uh, But anyways, up until that kind of fateful moment at the DMV, um, I had probably been in a car every single day of my life multiple times, right? I had watched my parents drive. A few years before I got my license, my sister had gotten hers, so I'd sit in the back seat as she learned to drive. But at 15 and a half, when I was allowed to get behind the wheel, my dad didn't just kind of chuck me the keys and say, all right, you've seen it done, like now you know what to do. Because amazingly, proximity to the thing itself is not what teaches us how to do it. Does that make sense? That's the case with most things, right? You can be next to an artist. It doesn't mean you know how to paint. And I think what really does it, as I found out at 15 and a half, is instruction and practice. Now, silly analogy, but I think when it comes to worship, especially if you've grown up in the church, we can be in proximity of this thing we call worship and praise, but in reality, we can have no idea what it is or why we even do it. And I think far too often we rely on proximity as the main way to be trained rather than instruction and practice. And worship is something that we should practice. Worship is something that we grow in. Worship is something that we can create a capacity for. And so my invitation this morning is to open our minds and almost set aside what we think about when we think about worship and allow the Spirit of God, allow the Word over these next few weeks. I know you're in a season, a series on worship, but to allow ourselves to really be recreated or retaught or relearned, be re-instructed. What is worship? Why is it so important? Why does God talk about it all the time? Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant. Worship is this constant thing that he is calling us into because he doesn't tell us to do it because he needs it, right? He doesn't need to be reminded that he's worthy. He doesn't have what I like to think of as Tinkerbell syndrome. You remember in Peter Pan? Um, You all have kids, so I'm sure you do. But but Tinkerbell kind of starts to, to die, right, if she's not believed in. She fades away and then everyone's like, we believe in you. And she kind of comes back to life. God isn't like that. He doesn't need our praise. He doesn't have to be reminded. He's not going to fade away if we forget to tell him that he is worthy and glorious and powerful. But friends, we fade away when we don't know that reality. 
We are the ones who suffer when we aren't oriented towards the goodness and the greatness and the mercy and the kindness and the glory and the honor of our God. And so that is why we worship. And I think for many of us today, if we're honest, based on proximity, there's kind of two extremes that we think about worship in. So if you imagine a pendulum on one side, worship is the, um, the kind of three songs before the message, the two songs after, sort of the, the uppers and the downers of the Christian communal experience, right? It's the sort of like ramp up and then we come back down. Um, I hope that's not too sacrilegious, but you know what I mean. It's that kind of ramp up or we swing to the other side of the pendulum and we talk about worship in kind of a vague, worship is your whole life. Okay, now both of these things can be true. We know that, right? Worship is my whole life. We are worshiping when we sing the songs before the message. But one is reductionary. That's all that worship is. One is generic. And I think both miss out of this deep, impactful, powerful thing that we see in scripture time and time again. So let's, let's allow ourselves, if I can be bold enough to ask, let's allow ourselves to become reacquainted this morning. What does it look like to be a people who know how to worship? Sound good? Good. If you said no, I had no other course of action, so I'm glad you said yes. It's such a preacher thing to say, like, sounds good, as if we were going to change our direction if you said no. Um, <laughs> I haven't been teaching that long. I shouldn't have those weird things. Um, Anyways, okay, as I mentioned earlier, there are a few cultural realities in our day and age. So right now, we live in an era that I think makes worship particularly difficult. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to kind of take a few minutes to unpack those because I think we can't talk about what we see biblically before we understand what are the things inside of us that resist biblical worship? What are the things inside of us that push back against that reality? And so I want, to, I want us to be aware of that internal resistance. And then secondly, we'll look at some of the ways worship combats those cultural realities and offers us an alternative and powerful means for engaging with God. So first in our cultural comments, um, tell me if I'm talking too fast, on the top page of every one of my notes says slow down. So um, I know I have the the tendency to speed up. So if I start to lose you guys, you can just raise a hand and I'll know what that means. Um, But first in our cultural comments, and this will come as no surprise, I think, to any of us, but we live in what, what is being deemed or called the age of entertainment, right? So all around us, literally, we carry in our pocket um, access to all the entertainment you could ever imagine. Netflix, Instagram, Twitter, Hulu, all of the streaming services, the news right now, it feels mainly like entertainment. Um, The political cycle, it's it feels like entertainment. And um, the reality is, and, and what we really love about entertainment, is that it offers us these kind of really exciting pseudo-realities. They're not real, but we get to experience pseudo-experiences all from the safety and comfort of our own couches or wherever you find yourself, right? Right? 
But by very nature, the problem with that is that it's inert, it's passive. It requires absolutely nothing of me. Neil Postman, in his book, um, Amusing Ourselves to Death, which if you are interested in that kind of thing, it's absolutely fascinating. He wrote it in the 80s about what entertainment was doing to culture. So this is pre-cell phone, pre basically anything. And I, it's almost this prophetic book because you read it and you're like, I mean, I know things existed in the eighties, but you know what I mean? (laughs) But it's a very different reality that we live in now, right? No one's cassette taping a show to anyways, you know what I mean? But he writes about the dangers of this passivity in, in an activity we engage with all the time. And he says this, he said, um, Where is it? Entertainment by nature is inert. It gives us something to talk about, but it cannot, cannot lead to any meaningful action. And let's be honest, that's why we love it. It requires nothing of us. So I can listen to NPR and I can be really up to date with who's who and what's happening in the world. And I don't have to do anything about it. I just know what's going on. The statistics tell us that most millennials don't show up to vote. And yet on the outside, they are the most politically active group in generations. You see the disconnect? Or in my case, because I do vote, um, in my case, I can become really obsessed with Extraordinary Homes on Netflix. If you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. Wow. It's these like, you know, homes from all over the world, the architecture, it's unreal. But I found myself one Saturday binge watching Extraordinary Homes while the rest of my house was in absolute chaos. You see the disconnect again, right? Or I can show up on a Sunday and I can listen to a message about the forgiveness and the grace of God and I can feel so good that the love of God has washed me, that I'm forgiven and all the while I'm nursing unforgiveness or bitterness towards someone in my life. Because in an entertainment economy, what you and I have been taught is that we come, we consume, and then we leave. Nothing is required of us. It's not costly. We don't have to change. And so a cycle begins to develop in the way that we operate, friends, where entertainment offers us distraction without involvement. And if I'm not involved, then I'm not really invested. And if I'm not invested, then more often than not, I become apathetic and disconnected. And eventually I find that that disconnection produces a kind of cynicism in me about whatever is entertaining me at any given moment. And that cycle, man, it slips into the church so easily. The stats on Christians in, I believe it's, it's in California, well, in Southern California, is every two years we change churches. I think it's this. I think we get to a point where it's just not that entertaining anymore, and I'm going to go somewhere else. But this cycle, it leads to what is the second cultural point for us this morning. Because in addition to an age of entertainment, we also live under this pressing spirit of skepticism. Dallas Willard, if you're familiar with him, amazing theologian, writer, and he says this, we live in a culture that has for centuries now cultivated the idea that the skeptical person is always smarter than the one who believes. Now, I think there is a necessary place for honest doubt and wrestling, but what we're talking about here, that this pervasive spirit of skepticism in our day and age, it's cynical, it's distrustful of all things, 
It most often manifests, I think if we're honest, out of a need to defend our individuality, defend our liberty, defend our choices, and avoid dealing with our insecurities, our issues, and our sin. And so we find ourselves with this entertainment, skeptical spirit, and it creeps into our our spirituality. It creeps into our understanding of God. And the devastating effect, and this is where it ties in, is that it leaves almost no room in our hearts and our minds and our souls for wonder, for joy, for faith, for hope. For the possibility, what might God do? And I think we need to recognize the fact that we have been conditioned by a culture that is so destructive to many things, but particularly biblical worship. Both of these things, entertainment and skepticism, they center on the self right? They are passive and they are as far removed from the call of Jesus in Mark 12 as you can imagine. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And yet that, friends, is the very epicenter of what you and I are being called into when we worship heart, soul, mind, body in abandoned and yes, sometimes undignified adoration and praise. But you can see where the problem begins to arise. Maybe you've even experienced it inside of you because we have irreconcilable cultures, irreconcilable spirits. The thing that the the scripture is calling us to is different from the thing we've been conditioned into. And in worship, they can clash so perfectly. One is all about the self. One is all about Jesus. One is all about consumption. The other is all about generosity. And I think for many of us, what happens on a Sunday is that we want to encounter God, but we have been culturally conditioned to just sit back and be entertained. We want to believe. We want to have faith. We want to be filled with awe and wonder. But strangely, we are suspicious of anyone else who seems to eat eager. Oh, that's just, that person's showing off or that person's looking for attention. What is that spirit of skepticism? And I think we find ourselves in this day and age at a crossroads. We're caught between entertainment, engagement, skepticism, faith. Will we be a people who give ourselves to this idea that we're going to unpackage of biblical worship, heart, soul, mind, body? Or do we simply, if we're honest, and let's be honest, And I have found myself here before, so I am not speaking out of a vacuum. If I'm honest, I want to show up on a Sunday morning, and essentially it's the day where I'm entertained by stories of Jesus, in a cool vibe where I meet cool people, and I listen to music, but really I'm just covering up the reality that I don't know how to engage intimately and personally with the Spirit of God. That's where we can find ourselves. I don't think we desire that. I just think we've been culturally conditioned towards it. 
I don't know about you, but I'm in the depth of my soul. When I, when I dig past all of the things inside of me, I want to know how to enjoy him. I want to know how to enter in on a Sunday and, and, and be completely enraptured with the spirit of God. I want to know what it feels like when, when, when the scripture talks about the first love. Do you remember falling in love for the first time? That sense of absolute infatuation, that sense of I just can't get enough. I want to know what it feels like to have that towards my king of kings and my lord of lords. But we have to make the choice. Do we choose to engage? Or do we choose to sit back? One of my favorite, favorite um, Tozer quotes in a book called Whatever Happened to Worship is he says the church, he says this simply, the church that can't worship must be entertained. Two options. That's all he gives us. Worship, entertainment, that's the choice we have before us today. Do we choose to continue in passivity or friends, do we accept the invitation offered to us time and time again in the scripture? Psalms 95, come, come let us worship and bow down, come. Come let us kneel before the Lord our God and maker for he is our God. We are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Psalms 100, come before him with joyful song. Know that the Lord is God. Shout for joy to the Lord. All the earth worship with gladness. It is he who made you and I. We are his. We are his invitation. That is what you are invited into this morning. Come. Come and know, come and find rest, come and find identity, come and understand who you are and what you were created for. Because where the world offers passive, inert, unsatisfying entertainment, just sit back, just listen and go away unchanged. Godly worship first and foremost offers us a chance to experience reality experience reality. Unlike the pseudo experiences out there, worship is the real deal. Taste and see, not look, taste and see that he is good. God is encouraging us to to taste, to sample, if you will, He knows his goodness. He knows the bounty of his self. And he is saying to each and every one of us, come and see just how good I am. And worship is an invitation into that eternal reality. Think about this. In the midst of a gathered community, when you and I come together, when we give God honor and praise through things like reading the Psalms, singing, um, prophecy, hymns, when we do this, friends, we are partaking in the new creation that is ours through the death and resurrection of Jesus. In worship, we experience what God always intended for us, communion without separation. When we worship, we experience an eternal and divine reality. You know, John, in the book of Revelation, he talks about um, seeing the celestial beings, right? You remember that moment? And he, and he sees them singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And in worship, we, we, it's this remarkable thing where somehow the temporal songs we are singing, songs that are bound to our time and space, are engaging with an eternal song that has and will always be sung about the glory and the nature of God. 
the divine and the human meet when we come to worship. Isn't that amazing? And he writes, um, another scholar that I love did a, a series of lectures on worship. And he talked about this kind of curious idea that public praise, so what we do here or in your community groups or when you sit as a family and you worship God, but that thing is the sign and the means of the new creation. Think about that. He, he said this, and I love it. Worship, public worship is the Christian equivalent of the cloud by day and the fire by night. What were those things to the people of Israel? They were a physical demonstration that the presence of the covenant God had come to dwell amongst them. And friends, when we stand up and we engage in worship, it is the physical sign that God is with us. God is with us. Public worship remakes reality inside of us. One of the aspects that I think we've lost in our modern worship is an understanding that worship is both mental, but it's also the physicality of our praise. I, um, I sing, and uh, I had vocal injuries years ago, and I remember going to a speech therapist and kind of talking through the strange reality of how singing works, right? Essentially, think about the rest of your body physically, Um, And it's not like my hands, if I hold them in a certain way, can start to make a sound. But the same things that go into this are in my throat and in the chamber in my diaphragm. And somehow in worship, and this sounds weird, but it's also really cool. Somehow in worship, the very physical nature of our beings create a sound. And it's as if everything we know in our head to be true is now being embodied in the very physicality of our flesh and blood, which is why worship is not just something we, we sing in our minds. We don't just kind of go through the words up here. We do them audibly because I think something in the nature of worship, something in what God intended is its mind and heart and soul and body. It's a physical reality. And the Bible is filled with this. Tom started talking about it last week, the physical nature of worship. But just to kind of recap some of that, one of the most frequent Hebrew words that we translate to worship, the actual kind of more correct translation is prostrate, to lie before. Or the word Barak, I know he mentioned this last week, it means, uh, it means bless, we kind of use it in that context, but it actually means to kneel, to bow before, to kneel. The word for thanksgiving, it, it more practically refers to the extension of hands. And so all of these things we've talked about, worship, blessing, thanksgiving, have corresponding actions innate to them because we experience worship, friends, not just with our minds, not just with our heart and our souls, but with our actual bodies. And if we talk about not being consumers, if we talk about pushing back against the tides of entertainment and consumption then these physical actions are ways in which we do it. It is a demonstration that God, not just my mind, not just my heart, but my entire being is yours. Does that make sense? Now, I know um, I've been a part of many different kinds of churches and denominations, and I know that for some of us, there is a very, it's an uncomfortable topic to talk about physicality in worship, our our physical beings, right? 
Um, I, I know some of us would, would prefer not the thought of raising hands, thought of kneeling. The thought of lying down in a church service is like, yikes. Um, I don't want to be that person. And I understand where we come from. But I want us to step out of the context of worship for just a second. Remember, proximity, what we've seen, what we know, that determines. And step out of that. And I want to imagine that you to imagine that I was describing my relationship with my husband, Stu. We've been together 10 years this year, married for six. Yeah, we're expecting our first child, which is really exciting. I know. Little boy, we found out this week. So yeah, I mean, it would have been great either way. But yes, we're excited. And But imagine setting aside the child. Imagine if I was describing my relationship with Stu and I was like, we just like we cognitively love each other so much. Like you won't even believe on a mental level like how, how passionate we are. But you know that like we just don't really believe in any kind of physical anything. We're like abstain from all of that, no kissing, holding hands, definitely nothing that creates a baby. And, um, you know, we sort of go for that I love Lucy approach, two twin beds, nightstand in the middle, you know, night dear, lights go off. Um, That's kind of how we, no, but really our marriage is so solid. We really love each other. Now, hopefully, if I described our marriage to you like that, you would go, I think there's something wrong with them. Um, And there would be. And yet, isn't it strange how comfortable we've become with loving God just mentally. Like mentally, I just assent, but I'm not going to sing or like, you know, I mean, I just, that's just not who I am. If my husband said to me, I just, I just don't want to ever kiss you. I'd kind of be like, well, tough luck. You have to. (laughs) I'm sure that's written somewhere in the Bible because we understand, right? The nature of relationships. They're mental they're emotional, and they're physical. On a friendship level, that's true. On a spousal level, that's true. On a kid-to-parent level, that's true. Isn't it all the more true with the God who created not just our minds, not just our souls, but our very physical beings? One of my favorite examples, if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 7. This is a story that appears in various forms in all the Gospels. You're probably pretty familiar with it. Luke's account, it says a woman who's lived a sinful life comes into the room where Jesus is meeting with his disciples are there, the Pharisees are there. And as the story goes, she anoints the feet of Jesus with perfume. And the Pharisees in every account are in uproar about it. The skeptical Pharisees, to me, they're the perfect example of the skeptic in church. It's like, whoa, that's too extravagant. And that's essentially what they are remarking on with this woman. And Jesus says this to her. Look at verse 44 with me. And then he turned to the woman and he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and she wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. I'm going to pause there. Jesus walks into this house. 
And here's all these religious leaders, disciples, all the people that look and are doing the right things. And here comes this woman. Set aside, we, we excuse so much to like, oh, that would have been normal back then. I don't think it would have because everyone is in shock that she's doing this. In every story, nobody thinks it's normal, okay? And here she comes. And she, despite the crowds, despite the people, she gets on her knees and she weeps and she pours out and she washes the feet of Jesus in this completely abandoned, beautiful, sacrificial, humble offering of praise. And what I love about this moment is you know that there is a deep reality inside of this woman, but it is overflowing into an embodied offering of worship. There is an internal story, and then there is an external action. Friends, this is what I think we are being called into. Everyone judges her extravagance, and she does it anyway. Everyone judges her generosity, and she does it anyway, and Jesus commends her for it. I want to be the type of person that can set aside the, I mean, it sounds so childish and juvenile, but who can set aside the opinions of man and recognize, as Tom said so beautifully earlier, that God is worthy of literally everything I have. And if you sit here today and you are unwilling to even accept the thought that maybe God wants you on your face in front of him, I don't think you fully understood the reality of this. And that's not in judgment, that's an invitation. When we understand just how good he is, I think there will definitely be moments when lying face down doesn't feel like enough. This woman, she knew who Jesus was, and she didn't just want to sit there. She didn't just want to be entertained by his stories and his theology. She wanted to offer everything that she had. I could spend all day there, but I won't. Um, I'm sure you're grateful because nobody really laughed at that. Um, All right, moving on. If experiencing God's reality, right, is the antidote to entertainment, the real as opposed to the pseudo, then I want to propose for us that the, the alternative or the antidote to the spirit of skepticism in our culture is holy expectation. Holy expectation. That's how we enter in. Turn with me to John 4. So our second kind of passage, once again, a pretty familiar story, um, but I want us to notice something different about it. John 4, and we're going to pick up in verse 19, but this is Jesus sitting with the Samaritan woman at the well. If you remember, um, he asked for water, they start to talk about it, and she is, um, he's referring to water welling up, Jesus is, and those who drink of it will have eternal life. You remember that moment? So read with me from verse 19. She says this, sir, uh, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and has now come, 
when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. I who speak to you am he. A time is coming and has now come. Holy expectation. Think about this for a moment. At the time in which Jesus is writing, um, the temple was the disputed area where people could engage with God. Not personally, remember, but through the priests. That's how mediation happened. And that was the reality of Israel and anyone who believed in the God Yahweh from the fall of man up until this moment. God created mankind for himself. His intention was always that we would be able to commune with him, engage with him, but sin changes all that. And for the entirety of the Old Testament, the practice of the people of God was a separated worship through a mediation of the priest. But John 4, this moment, Jesus says, a time is coming and has now come. I, who you speak of, am he. And Paul picks up this idea in Ephesians 1 and 2 when he talks about that fact that you and I are now the living temple. You remember that moment? He says, the new temple in which God dwells by his spirit. Paul writes, in him, you too, each and every one of us are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives. So imagine the dichotomy. Before you went to the temple, some said your temple counts, some said it didn't. You went there through the mediation of a priest. You were able to to offer things to God. And now God says, you are the temple and I, my spirit, will dwell in you. That which once only the priests had access to, think about that, has now been poured out on every single one of us who chooses to accept the reality of the resurrection of Jesus you and I, the new temples of God. And can you imagine how much that changed? We've become so familiar with the idea that God can be anywhere. That was never the view of mankind. God was confined to a space you could not go. And now God is indwelling in us. And so when we come together when we engage with one another in worship, I think we should be overwhelmed with the idea that, that God could do anything. And not from a posture of hype, I hate that, but this is the reality of what we see in scripture. That which was separated from us has now been given to us without any limitations, without any hindrances. That's that's remarkable. It blows my mind when I allow it to sink in how many generations longed for what I have access to every single day. That's what worship is, the invitation to that reality. I... um, this is how I think about it, and maybe it's a silly way, but um, growing up, I, my family's from South Africa, born, raised there until kind of just before junior high. And up until that point, we went to a Hasidic Jewish school in South Africa. We're not Jewish, um, not at all. But the schools at the time were segregated, um, and my folks did not want us in an all-white school. And they, 
radical and amazing, and they said, we want you to be the minority, so we're sending you to an all-Jewish school. We were the only non-Jewish kids in this school, and I mean like we were learning Hebrew, we were studying the Torah. It was like very Jewish. I loved it. I really wished I was Jewish. Um, They have a lot of festivals and feast days, which we don't have in the Christian tradition as much, so I felt like I was getting the short end of the stick. But anyways, so I went to Jewish school, and the very, very first time we got to go to temple, and obviously I hadn't grown up in the Jewish tradition, so it was quite an amazing thing to go to the temple and meet the rabbi. And um, (laughs) we were sitting in, I mean, I probably was seven, and I genuinely, we were allowed to ask questions at the end to the rabbi. And being a seven-year-old who was not raised in the Hasidic tradition, I raised my hand and I said, who sewed the curtain back up? And it was a very serious offense. I was almost expelled from Jewish school. (laughs) But I remember, it's this moment that's fixed in my mind because I remember we could go here and no further. There was the presence of God. There was where he dwelled. And I was not allowed to go there. Does that make sense? So think about the book of Acts when the early church hears that the temple curtain has been torn from top to bottom. Think about what that would have meant for them. Has it really happened? Has the spirit of God really come? Can I actually experience the reality of the living God in my very being? Friends, that should create an expectation in us. Let us not become so familiar with the personal nature of God that we forget the fundamentally radical reality that that is. Awe, wonder, anticipation, which begs the question when you and I walk in on a Sunday morning, what do we expect is going to happen? Is this what frames our mind? The living God is here with us, not there, not separate. When I sing, am I actively allowing those words to shape my mind, both in public and private worship? And I hope we are spending time in private worship. But do I know how to to recognize the presence of God and just enjoy him? Do I know how to be unhurried and unrushed, not always thinking when's the next song coming, but allowing the words to truly sink into the depth of my being, holy expectations as I wonder what God is going to do today. And not just through the modern day priests, not just through the guy leading worship, but through me. Does God want to speak through me this morning? Does God want to do something through me in this posture of worship How many generations long for what we have? Let us not be unaware of the depth of that reality. How do we worship? How do we transcend our own individualism? We come and we bow down. Worship is sacrificial and generous. I set aside my fear of man. I set aside my pride. I risk. I pour everything out. I don't leave anything back from the one to whom my soul is enraptured with. Worship is an act that should include everything I have. How do I push back the tides of entertainment and consumption in the church? We don't want to be a church that operates like that. Well, we actively and 
earnestly engage with the experience of the living God? How do we combat secular cynicism and skepticism that so easily seeps into our spiritual journeys? Awe and wonder and expectation. We walk in every Sunday going, God, what are you going to do today? This is what we are being invited into. It's not ceremony. It's not routine. It's not religious activity. It is the practice of the power of God in our midst. Come and do the thing that you were always intended for, that you will do for all eternity. Everything will pass away except the worship of our living God. Everything except this. I think it was Tozer as well who said the people who can't worship are not ready for eternity because this is what we're going to be doing. This is what we are invited into. I'm going to bring it to a close. But, you know, one of, the, um, one of the other accounts of that woman who anoints the feet with Jesus, it says this, it says, and the house was filled with the fragrance of her perfume. And I've been thinking about that a lot over the last few weeks. The house was filled with the fragrance of her perfume. You see, heartfelt worship for Jesus is never merely private. When I engage with everything that I have, it's a gift to the whole community. My generosity in worship is a gift to this community. It spills over into the house of God. The whole house was filled with the smell of her perfume. You know, sometimes I don't feel like worshiping. Honest. I don't. Sometimes I lead worship and I don't feel like leading worship. That's the reality. But you know what I've learned? I sing louder because I genuinely believe that someone in the room needs to hear the truth of God sung over them. And sometimes that person is me, where I get on my knees and I allow the voices of the congregation to fill my very soul because I have nothing left. And I need to be reminded in worship that God is good and faithful and loving and kind because I don't see it and I don't know it. Worship is something that we invite into together. Sometimes we bathe each other in the truth of God. One of the reasons God gave us worship is that it doesn't just minister to him. In worship, we minister to one another. We minister to each other. We sing truth. We break down barriers. We push back against the culture of this age. We push back against the lies of the enemy. We silence the things that try to hold us to a different reality. And we are invited once again into an eternal reality that says, this is who you are. This is what you were created for. This is what I am inviting you into. And slowly but surely, every time we worship, God's reality is being recreated in us. That we are not separated. That we are not alienated. That we are not we are not akin or, or known by our sin alone that we are known by a new name that we are our priests that we are a temple for the living God that is what we are invited into and that's why it matters how we praise how we worship can we do this can we close our eyes for a minute Lord, I am passionate about this because I have known what it is like to be separate from it. I have known the seasons 
where my identity has been so corrupted or so defined by other things. And then I have seen as you have wooed me back to the reality of who you are. And even as we maybe take a moment, what are the things that get in the way of me engaging? What are the truths that I just can't seem to to grapple with? I want to invite each and every one of us, myself included, what does generous worship look like? What does it look like to offer a fragrance that fills the house of God? What does it look like to minister to one another as we minister to God? Maybe it's a chance to worship with a new understanding. Maybe it's a chance to worship with a new posture, a new gift, a new offering. But Lord, this we know that when we experience the reality of the presence of God, we don't want to sit back. We don't want cheap, pseudo-Christian experiences where we just show up, we're entertained, and then we go. We want something far deeper, far truer, something far more eternal. That's what we want, Jesus. Won't you equip our hearts and our minds to engage with that this morning? Jesus' name.